Welcome to worship today. This week we began the yearly journey of Lent, our period of preparation before Easter Sunday. It's a time of self-examination and considering our relationship with God. During Lent this year, I'll be preaching four sermons in a series that I'm calling Encounters with Jesus. And in each of these sermons, we'll read an account of one of the longer conversations conversations Jesus has with someone in the Gospels. In each of these sermons, I'll devote more time than I sometimes do to examining the details of the Bible story as we explore what it might have been like for each one of these people to have an encounter with Jesus. And I will raise some questions out of that encounter that I hope you will see parts of in yourself, so that you can see yourself in these stories and you might be led to your own encounter with God. This Sunday, we begin with the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. It comes to us from the gospel according to John in the third chapter, beginning at the first verse. Hear the word of God. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
startle us, O God, with the truth, the love, the hope, the peace that is found in your word. Help us to rediscover with each new day your care for us, your challenge for us, and your invitation for us to walk with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the story we read today, we are confronted by not one, but two of the most recognizable sound bites in Christianity. One is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. The other is the idea of being born again which grows out of the conversation we read in verses 3 through 7 of today's story. Both of these sound bites are polarizing in Christianity. They create insiders and outsiders in our faith. Scholar Anna Carter Florence has suggested that some folks are attracted to these sound bites as ways of evaluating who the real Christians are. Others among us who may not be comfortable with such a test of faith may avoid these ideas altogether, where they may listen for other people to quote them and then label those people as religious fanatics. Neither one of these points of view is very helpful. Not only are they divisive, but they are both conversation stoppers. I'm hoping this sermon will be a conversation starter, so for now, let's simply name that these ideas have the potential to be divisive, and let's set them aside long enough to look at the rest of this story and to see it through fresh eyes. I'll name for you what has been my own mistake in reading this passage. I have been a churchgoer my entire life, and I cannot remember a time when I did not know John 3.16. However, for much of my life, it never occurred to me to think about the meaning of that verse in the context of the story in which it takes place. I never thought about the idea that this statement of Jesus happens in the midst of a lengthy conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Did Jesus ever intend that people would quote John 3.16 all by itself? I don't know. But today, as a way of expanding my own understanding, I'm going to set aside John 3.16 first and back up long enough to study with you what is going on in this story. So, what is going on in this story? Well, this is only the third chapter of the Gospel according to John, but much has happened already. We know that Jesus is rapidly gaining some followers and that he's rapidly gaining some critics. 
Here's a quick overview of what happened in chapters 1 and 2. The book begins with a philosophical introduction you might recognize. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. At the conclusion of that discourse, the story then takes off. John the Baptist appears and introduces Jesus, who he calls the fulfillment of the hopes for a Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel. Jesus begins to gather his first disciples. He invites people to join him in his ministry. There's a story then in which he visits a wedding at Cana and uh, gains some attention when he turns water into wine as part of the festivities. And then, as Passover approaches, Jesus goes into the crowded Jerusalem temple He finds that it's been set up as a marketplace, and he angrily overturns the tables of the money changers and puts himself at odds with the temple authorities. The very next thing that happens is today's story. One of those temple authorities is a man named Nicodemus, and he he visits Jesus. The story tells us that he is a Pharisee, Pharisees have a bad reputation in Christian history. Some might call it anti-Semitic because we see the Pharisees questioning Jesus, and some people have been offended by that. So it deserves to be said, it needs to be said, that many Pharisees were very faithful people who were serious about their religion. As for Nicodemus, it is fair to say that he represents the culturally acceptable and appreciated religion of the day. As a Pharisee, he is also a recognized leader. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the group that was in charge of the temple and the autonomous affairs of the Jewish people in the days of the Roman Empire. So Nicodemus is exactly the kind of person who would have been most threatened by Jesus' recent acts in the temple, overturning those tables of the money changers and driving them out. Surprisingly, though, when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, he acts neither threatened nor angry. Rather, he is curious. Something about Jesus has caught his attention, and he wants to know more. He has questions. Rabbi, he says, greeting Jesus with respect. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Nicodemus knows that there is something very special about Jesus, and he wants to figure out what makes him tick. Jesus takes Nicodemus' question, and he pushes it in a different direction. He says to him, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Jesus suggests to Nicodemus that instead of being astounded by the amazing things Jesus is able to do, he might try asking some deeper questions about his own spirituality. Has he ever considered that there might be a spiritual rebirth waiting to happen in his own heart? 
Nicodemus has never considered such a thing, and he's puzzled. He asks Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus' reply is great. He says, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? That same professor, Anna Carter Florence, she suggests that Jesus is not shaming Nicodemus when he asks this. Jesus is joking with him a little bit. He chides Nicodemus that if he's going to instruct other people in religion, he might first be asking deeper questions about his own spiritual life. Nicodemus is comparable to people we can readily think of today. He is the pastor who preaches every Sunday but doesn't do much spiritual work of his own. He's the elder or deacon in a congregation who's happy to go to the committee meeting but has no expectations of growing in her faith. Lay aside for a moment the fact that Nicodemus is a teacher and he might be any of us, anyone who has allowed spiritual life to become a series of routines. Showing up for church, making a pledge, singing in the choir, without any real effort to ask questions big enough to change a life. For these folks, religion stays at church. It has no real impact on one's family life or work decisions or ways of being from Monday through Saturday. These are the Nicodemuses of our day. Here's one more point in this story that tells us a lot about Nicodemus. All of the scholars seem to comment on this. The story tells us that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. He comes under the cover of darkness. He doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. Now, to be sure, his fellow Pharisees might have been suspicious of him if, he, if they knew. But more to the point, G Nicodemus seems to want for this to be a secret meeting. None of this background presents Nicodemus in a very positive light. But there is a key factor that redeems him in this story. Nicodemus shows up. Yes, it may be nighttime, but Nicodemus comes to see Jesus. His original questions may not be the best ones, but he asks, and when the question changes, he stays in the conversation. He's engaged. Plenty of others might be satisfied to stay home and critique the revolutionary teachings of Jesus. But Nicodemus wants to know more. As the gospel progresses, we'll get the sense that Nicodemus is an important person to watch in Jesus' story. He's going to show up two more times in the gospel of John. In chapter 7, he sticks up for Jesus in front of some of his critics. And then in chapter 19, he is present with Joseph of Arimathea after the crucifixion. Nicodemus provides spices when Jesus is laid in the tomb. But now, 
Let's turn to Jesus. What role is he playing in this story? Well, we've already said that he takes Nicodemus' initial questions and he deepens them. He challenges Nicodemus, and he does so with some conviction and also with some humor. Both of these things point to a broader reality about what Jesus is up to in this story and in many others. Jesus offers the perfect invitation to a deeper and richer spiritual life. You can do no better. His invitation to Nicodemus is welcoming and encouraging, but it is also given in total freedom. There's no pressure to come along. Nicodemus can say no thanks if he wants to. Jesus does not pressure Nicodemus to come along. He has no ego about how many followers he can collect. Jesus' invitations are also challenging. He asks hard questions, but they are questions that are worth thinking about. When Jesus invites you to follow, a richer spiritual life is there for the taking if only you are willing to reach out and grab it. Invitations are always important. And there are a few elements to a really good invitation. A good invitation does not try too hard because people will always get the most out of something they enter into willingly, even eagerly. If you have to twist somebody's arm, you probably don't want them in the room. Additionally, a good invitation does not hide the challenges that may be ahead. It is tempting to give an invitation that sounds easy because you want more people to come. But what leaders really want when they give an invitation is people who are willing to do the work, willing to take on a challenge. A friend of mine who cares about good invitations likes to reference a man named Ernest Shackleton who was recruiting for an Antarctic expedition a century ago. He supposedly ran an advertisement in the London Times. It read this way, wanted. Men for Antarctic expedition, low pay, lousy food, safe return, doubtful. Perfect invitation, my friend says. And Shackleton reportedly got 5,000 applicants. The invitation Jesus gives to Nicodemus is the same one that comes to us. Seminary professor Deborah Cap notes that Jesus' invitation is provocative because it invites us to open our imaginations and reconsider our relationship with God. Jesus invites Nicodemus as he invites each one of us to come into the light of day, out of the darkness, and to become mature believers, full participants in the life that he offers. It's hard to tell what happens with Nicodemus as a result of this invitation. And maybe that makes his story all the more interesting. 
when he reappears in chapter 7, he sticks up for Jesus up to a point, but there's no indication of whether he's really decided to follow Jesus or if he's still on the fence. As for his appearance at the crucifixion with the burial spices, that scene continues with the same ambiguity. As one commentator has suggested, maybe Jesus is there to weigh him down with enough burial spices to be sure that he'll remain in the tomb. Nicodemus may want to know that he really is dead. I rather like the ambiguity of Nicodemus. For some of us share qualities with him. We have some doubts about how far we really wish to follow Jesus and how much influence we really want for him to have on our lives. The story of Nicodemus suggests that there's always room for us to continue testing the waters. The invitation is always open. But the invitation is also clear that the stakes are high. There is an open invitation to a rebirth of our spirits and a realization of who God has created us to be to let that opportunity pass on by would be truly tragic so what to make of the famous verse John 3:16 or the idea of being born again It doesn't seem to me like the point of this story about Nicodemus is to provide a test to identify the real Christians. And on the other hand, it seems quite dangerous to sidestep these verses entirely. If we can't ask good questions about what it means to be born again, we risk remaining in a somewhat stale and boring religious routine that will never lead us to the abundant life. Jesus wants for us. So here at the start of the season of Lent, a time set aside each year for self-examination, a time set aside for considering one's relationship with God, here is my prayer. I pray that we will all be convicted by Jesus' invitation that was given to Nicodemus. Come, Come and see life in the fullness that God intended for us. Ask the hard questions. Open yourself to difficult challenges. Immerse yourself in a faith that does not just reside at church on Sunday, but that is woven through every fiber of your being. Be warned. It is not an invitation to something easy. Wanted. People for spiritual expedition. Low pay. Lousy food. Safe return. Doubtful. Amen.